Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In their new book called The Fifth Domain, Richard Clark and Robert Kanaki take us inside quantum computing labs racing to develop super uh, cyber cyber super weapons, bringing us into boardrooms of many uh, firms that have been hacked, the few have not, walk us through the corridors of U.S. intelligence community with officials working to defend America's elections from foreign malice. With a focus on solutions over scaremongering, they make a compelling case for cyber resilience, building systems that can resist most attacks, raising the costs on cyber criminals and autocrats who often lurk behind them and avoiding the trap of overreaction to digital attacks. Above all, they show us how to keep the fifth domain a humming engine of economic growth and human progress by not giving in to those who would turn it into a wasteland of uh, conflict. Robert Kanaki is Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Senior Research Scientist at Northeastern University, Advisor to Startups, Investment Firms, and Fortune 500 Companies. Kanaki served from 2011 to 2015 in the Obama White House as a Director of Cybersecurity Policy at the National Security Council. He's co-author with Richard Clark of the New York Times bestseller, Cyber War. He joins us for the hour. Robert Kanaki, thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, so uh, your book, uh, Cyber War, came out about 10 years ago. In that book, you predicted the threats to cyberspace would grow, it would involve military forces, and it would place critical infrastructure at risk. In some circles, you were called alarmist. Um, your predictions have come true. Yeah, it's been an interesting 10-year uh, process to, to watch this unfold. When, when we wrote Cyber War, in 2009 and 2010, we really wrote it as a call to action. We, we saw what was happening. We saw the U.S. military's focus on this new domain. We heard from our colleagues in government that other militaries were so focused. And so we were really trying to sound the alarm to get the rest of the national security community woken up to the threat. When we wrote the book, Wired Magazine reviewed it, and they titled their review, Cyber War, File Under Fiction. They said, this isn't really possible. This isn't going to happen. Warfare isn't going to move onto the Internet. This is a silly idea. Well, if you look back at the last decade, it really looks like we've already seen warfare move into this domain, and we're going to see warfare continue to move and possibly dominate this domain if we don't do something about it. Is is that the warfare moving to this domain? Is that the biggest concern? You've, I mean, you predicted, you were accurately in predicting a lot of these things. What is it that most concerns you about the last 10 years? Well, what we've seen is that our adversaries are using cyber warfare uh, and their intelligence collection capabilities to level the playing field with the United States. Today, there really is no military that can go toe-to-toe with the United States. Russia can't. China can't. China has a growing conventional military capability. But they're still looking to offset our dominance on land, sea, air, and in space with cyber weapons. And so that's the big concern, is that countries like Russia and China, North Korea, are investing disproportionately in this area. Countries like Iran, which couldn't possibly hope to defeat us in a normal conflict, are investing heavily in this area. And so the concern is not only are they able to develop capabilities that are almost as good as ours, but we are also more vulnerable to this kind of warfare because we're more dependent on the Internet for our economy because we've connected more of our infrastructure to it. 
uh, and because of the way our politics is structured. The effects of turning off the lights in New York City are a lot different from a political perspective than turning off the lights in Moscow. So this is potentially, I guess not potentially, has been ongoing, is a uh, increasingly powerful tool for some of these uh, states? Absolutely. I mean, so what we've seen in a variety of ways uh, is countries using these tools uh, for whatever advantage they seem to need over the United States that they perceive they need over the United States. So with China, we've seen them focus on economic growth and building their technical capacity. That's been their national goal in a series of five-year plans dating back to about the year 2000. What they've done with their cyber offensive capabilities is really focused on stealing U.S. intellectual property, on stealing patents and formulas and design plans and the details of trade deals so they can get up to par with us uh, in terms of technology. And so they've used their government, their military, their intelligence hacking units to target U.S. businesses and to give them a leg up. Uh, They take that information that they steal from U.S. businesses and they give them to what are called the Chinese national companies, companies like Huawei and ZTE that have been in the news recently, uh, that have been able to build their technical foundation on intellectual property that U.S. companies built. So that's what we've seen China do. If you look at Russia, Russia has had a, a fairly standard playbook of using information operations Uh, in Eastern Europe in a variety of ways. They test out their capabilities in Eastern Europe, then they move them to Western Europe, and then when the geopolitical circumstances dictate, they will, and they have in the past, use them on the United States. And so when we look at things like election meddling, uh, this was a playbook that the Russians uh, really developed first in Eastern European elections, and then they started, did a number on uh, the U.K. and Brexit. They've engaged in the same kind of manipulations in France, and we shouldn't have been surprised in 2016 uh, when they interfered in our elections in the U.S. And I'll tell you what really worries me now is we've seen that same pattern play out Uh, in terms of the electric grid. We've now seen Russia twice take down portions of Ukraine's electric grid. They've shut the power off using cyber attacks. They don't need to do that in Ukraine. Ukraine is pretty much a vassal state to Russia, but they essentially use that as a trial run, as a test bed for what's likely to be a future attack on the United States or our allies when they think it's in their interest to shut out the lights in New York or Washington, D.C. So I just want to make it clear. So the 2016 uh, election meddling um, hacking by by Russia um, in uh, in some quarters, um, the White House, um, that seems to be being downplayed. Well, I mean, I think that what we need to do on the issue of downplaying the election interference in 2016 is just understand what the conclusions have been coming out of our intelligence community, civil servants who've dedicated their lives to the national security of the United States. And the director of national intelligence in this administration and in the last one have been unequivocal that Russia did interfere uh, in the election, that it did so. 
in favor of President Trump, candidate Trump, uh, at the time. Uh, this happened. It will happen again. What we all need to keep in mind, though, is that we should not assume that even a year from now, the Russians will choose the same side. We should also not conclude that the Chinese or other groups will stand out the next election. We could very well see this kind of inter, uh, election interference uh, from the Chinese on behalf of a Democratic candidate or on behalf of a challenger to President Trump. Uh, there are perfectly good reasons why the Chinese might think that's in their interest. And so we as Americans need to not focus on wanting or desiring foreign countries to interfere in our elections. We need to focus on having voters decide those elections without foreign interference, regardless of which side it's on. And so that needs to be the overwhelming focus of policy in this area. And I, I will say that uh, I've been very impressed with what I've seen coming out of uh, the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, and the Department of Homeland Security on election interference. There is no issue uh, that the Department of Homeland Security's uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency is more focused on than election security. They're engaging across all 50 states. They are doing training. Uh, they are supplying capability. Uh, and they're very focused on helping to secure our election infra infrastructure for the 2020 election. My understanding is, is this past interference by the Russians uh, took the form of uh, disinformation. Uh, um, was there a direct attack on the, you know voting machines? Is, is that I, I, I was going to ask that possible? I know it's possible. Uh, is is that uh, it? Seems like the security with the actual voting systems is pretty vulnerable. Uh, well, we know it's vulnerable because there's been plenty of testing uh, on it that shows that every year uh, at a large hackers convention in Las Vegas in August uh, that I was just at, uh, there's something called the Voting Village where they where the hackers just try and break in and beat up on voting systems. And the vulnerabilities they find and the time it takes them to get into the systems is just scary. So we know they're vulnerable. Now, that said, we don't have any evidence from 2016 that there were actually manipulation of vote tallies or voting machines. We don't know that, right? We know that the intelligence community was able to pull together very strong evidence of Russian interference, of Russian online influence operations through advertising, through Facebook engagement, uh, they did not find, or they at least did not tell of that kind of direct manipulation. So that is potentially good news. Now, the bad news is that the security of these voting systems is so bad that unless the intelligence community was able to uncover it, nobody operating one of those systems would ever have seen the Russians coming. So the fact that no state believes that they were manipulated uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't. Hmm. Uh, incredibly concerning, obviously. What, what is, what's the prescription? What, uh, what should we be doing? I mean, the answer is good old-fashioned paper ballots that can be tallied up by the League of Women Voters uh, and other volunteers. I mean, that is really the answer. 
paper is a lot harder to manipulate. It's a lot harder to change vote tallies. We know how to have uh, dual oversight systems so we can trust the tallies coming out of each and every precinct. Uh, and so that's that's the most basic answer. We've seen, I believe, 38 states at this point have either gone back to paper ballots or instituted some kind of paper tally for vote checking on their electronic voting systems. That's the right thing. The other 12 states that haven't done that need to move that to that within the next year. We have enough time that we can do this and we can have confidence in our voting systems that they weren't manipulated. So that would be the most important thing that we can do. I want to follow up on something you said. I believe you said um, we, we may have hacking. We may not even know it happened. Yeah, I mean, so this is this is the nature of of cybersecurity, right? Is that uh, the ability to detect these kinds of capabilities uh, getting targeted by a stealthy actor like the Russian really requires a lot of instrumentation on commute computing systems and some pretty deep-skilled people to be able to put together uh, the signals, to detect the signals from the noise and, and all the Internet traffic that's out there. And so in the case of something like voting systems, you're really talking about uh, networking and technology that is, in many cases, 10 or 15 years old. It wasn't designed with security in mind. It wasn't designed uh, to be... Uh, audited. Many of these systems don't even provide the kind of logs that forensics experts need to be able to know what has happened on a system. And so it can be very difficult to, after the fact, go back and, and do the forensics and figure out whether a system was targeted or hacked. And so you say good old-fashioned paper ballots, uh, you, you mean the, where, uh, the ones where you fill in the ovals, that kind of thing, or the Exactly, exactly. That electronic scanning, right? Because yeah. if you have that kind of system, yeah, there's an electronic component to the to the bubble chart readers. Uh, but you can go back and you can validate that. You can go back and you can count up each of the ballots and make sure that what is being reported in the electronic system is what, in fact, uh, was recorded on the paper ballot. You can't do that with a purely electronic system. And so from that perspective, it just makes sense to say, hey, this is an area where we can tolerate a little less efficiency uh, in order to have confidence that the election outcome is, in fact, what voters chose. Hmm. One more thing on the election. Uh, in the book, you say that uh, Russians have a long history with uh, disinformation. And so they see cyber war and propaganda is is very much, uh, you know, uh, uh, one thing. And so that's harder to defend against, isn't it? Disinformation, because that's not as much a security problem, or is it? Well, I mean, it's absolutely a problem uh, with the Internet as we know it today. And we talk a lot in the book. We go beyond just security to talk about how the Internet is constructed what are the business incentives, what we may, may need to change about those incentives that prevent outcomes like this. What you, what you have to remember about the Russians is they've really never stopped their influence operations. It, it, it peaked around 2016. We see it spike around the 2018 election. We should expect to see renewed focus around 2020. But what the Russians are trying to do is divide us as a country. They're trying to stir up turmoil. They're trying to cause 
problems to try and weaken us. Vladimir Putin knows, as I said at the top of the hour, right, that he can't go toe-to-toe with the U.S. military, but he's an old KGB officer. He remembers the good old days of Soviet power and Soviet might. And so if he can't rise to the level of the United States, he wants to try and bring us down. And the way he's trying to do that through all this social media manipulation is to introduce conflict. And so when you look at what the Russians are stoking online, what kind of engagement they're doing, we know what they do around the elections. But in between, they have been involved in a variety of things that have created division and divisiveness in the United States. They've been stoking things like uh, anti-vaccine movement. They have been engaging in trying to stoke up racial animus. Uh, they have supported uh, silly ideas like uh, the California breakaway movement, right? And that has a clear kind of uh, parallel in what we see concerned in Russian politics, right? Russia is always worried about its so-called breakaway republics, right? The Soviet Union disintegrated, and Vladimir Putin has, in some respects, been trying to put it back together uh, with what he's done in Ukraine, ventures in Georgia, uh, etc. And so trying to stoke the disintegration of the United States makes perfect sense if you're trying to become co-equal with the U.S. If you can't rise to the level of the U.S., well, if you could carve off California and take a big chunk of U.S. GDP with it, that would weaken the U.S. And so that's the kind of thing that he's trying to do and that we're susceptible to online because of how these social media and platforms work and how we as citizens engage with them. So uh, how do we defend against that? How best to, uh, to counteract that? Well, a lot of people's thinking in this area goes back to Cold War analogies. And I mean, I, I just made a Cold War analogy. Uh, but many people focus on the idea of, okay, well, how do we deter uh, Putin? Or how do we deter the Chinese from this kind of activity? And that's a very Cold War idea. Right? We had mutually assured destruction for nuclear warfare. Uh, we understood their capabilities. They understood our capabilities. We understood their doctrine. They understood our doctrine, right? And if the missiles flew, we were going to be able to detect that, and we were going to be able to launch, and we were going to have second and third strike capabilities. And so we could assure that if the Russians ever use nuclear weapons, we were going to wipe them off the face of the earth, right? That was the mutually assured destruction concept. Well, that idea doesn't really apply in cyberspace. It's very hard to deter the Russians because there's very little that Vladimir Putin really cares about. We've seen that the Russians are willing and capable of taking much pain uh, for the activities that Putin has carried out uh, in Ukraine, in Iran, and elsewhere. Uh, the economic sanctions have been devastating, and yet He's been willing to do them for his vision of greater glory for Russia. And so it's very hard for us to find ways to say, okay, if, if they engage in this sort of election manipulation, we'll do the same to them. I and mean, we can't do the same to them. Their elections are already rigged, right? They're already being manipulated uh, by Putin and uh, his political allies. And so from that perspective, we've got to step back and figure out how can we become more resilient to these kinds of threats? How can we manage them on our end? 
when we look at the situation, we see a number of things, right? At one level, we need to have much better coordination on policy and on security uh, with our like-minded allies in Europe and other democracies around the world. We need essentially a global front against the Chinese and the Russian and their online manipulation, economic threat, and uh, offensive warfare capabilities. We need to come together and be able to coordinate like we did in the Cold War against these threats, but in a brand new domain. And so that's one of the things we talk about. The other thing that I think is really most relevant to this is it's probably far past the time in which we should be engaging in much of what we do online and anonymously. Uh, That's really one of the core problems that we're seeing here. So on a platform like Facebook, where under their policy, you're supposed to use your real name. You're not supposed to be an avatar. You're not supposed to make up another personality that you use. If you're on Facebook and Rob Kanaki is on your birth certificate, Rob Kanaki is supposed to be your Facebook name. But Facebook does not validate that. They don't know, in fact, whether the owner of an account, the username they're using, corresponds to who they are in real life. And so that lets the Russians and criminal groups create billions, literally billions of fake accounts every year. And so I think if we want to get away from this cycle of catch-up, playing catch-up with the Russians and with criminal groups on these threats, we've got to move to a situation where we're using validated identities on these platforms and where if you claim to be somebody, you're going to have to prove that. And then if you act in an unlawful way or a way that's counter to that website, that platform's policy, you're going to get kicked off of it and you're not going to be able to rejoin it under an assumed name. That, that would be a big change. That would, that would change a lot of things, uh, and it, not only security. Uh, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about, get into talking about, you talk in the book about uh, cyber resilience, right? I want to talk about that. Um, and uh, much more. We have with us uh, Robert Kanaki. Uh, he is uh, a senior fellow with the Council of Foreign Relations, senior research scientist at Northeastern University, advisor to startups, investment firms, Fortune 500 companies. And uh, he is co-author of a new book we've been talking about, The Fifth Domain. We're talking about cybersecurity. And we'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and the Salt Lake City Weekly's 10th Annual Utah Beer Festival, Saturday and Sunday, August 17th and 18th at the Utah State Fair Park, featuring over 200 local and regional beers and ciders, food vendors, and live music. Ticket details at utahbeerfestival.com. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air. But we have a lot more to say and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed. Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag IamUPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR. 
Utah Public Radio would like to thank Thompson Premier Lighting and Appliance for sponsoring UPR programming. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. We would also like to thank our listeners and members. Remember, you can now listen and contribute on our new UPR app. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new book. It's called The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. And uh, my guest for the hour is Robert Kanaki. Uh, He is a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. He, along with uh, Richard Clark, have written this book. Uh, About 10 years ago, they they released uh, their book, Cyber War. And a lot of the predictions in that book have uh, come true. so, Robert Kanaki, I want to talk about uh, kind of the shift that has happened, at least my perception shifted re- reading the book. Um, my feeling was, or kind of the perception was, that uh, it's, you know, private actors out there who are inflicting the damage. But uh, in your book, you're saying that it's, uh, th- this has shifted. It's, uh, it's nation's militaries. It's the military who's uh, issuing these attacks. It's essentially, you know, warfare in the cyberspace. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fairly scary time, right? We've seen, on the one hand, the spread of offensive cyber capability from just a handful of countries to now over 100 countries have established offensive cyber units. Uh, their militaries are planning, training, and equipping themselves to carry out offensive cyber operations. So that's a big shift. Now, the really scary part of this is that we think in the United States about uh, having separation of interest, separation of duties. We have three branches of government. We have the public and the private sector. N- none of those divisions necessarily hold in many of the countries where you've got uh, offensive cyber capability being developed. And I think the, the scariest piece of this is to realize that in many countries, there is no division between the government, supposedly the good guys, and the criminal world, supposedly the bad guys. So what we've seen on a number of occasions uh, with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the Iranians, is uh, under government orders engaging in what we would consider criminal behavior, like stealing intellectual property, or essentially moonlighting uh, by the same actors in the same groups uh, for criminal purposes, uh, for generating income, for acting on the orders of uh, organized crime. And so there isn't that kind of separation. The, the scariest uh, aspect in many ways uh, has been to watch uh, the North Koreans. Now, I mean, North Korea is a country that doesn't really have an Internet where satellite flybys at night will show that most of the country doesn't even have lighting. And yet they've developed very impressive offensive cyber capabilities. And they're using those offensive cyber capabilities right now not to wage warfare, uh, but to engage on crime on a massive, massive scale in order to fund the regime. So many years ago, North Korea would engage in counterfeiting of $100 bills, They would engage in kidnapping and extortion in order to bring in hard currency uh, into North Korea. Now they're just engaging in cybercrime on a a widespread scale. And, of course, 
They're doing that, uh, not from North Korea, which doesn't really have an Internet, uh, but from safe havens uh, that they've established in a hotel uh, across the Chinese border, uh, in India, and in other countries around the world. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, more and more, we're all in the cyberspace, right? And, And therefore very vulnerable. Um, so I, I don't know, is, is, is there good news? Is, is the defensive capability getting better? Well, I think there is good news. And I think that's, that's one of the things that surprised us when we wrote this book is when we looked back at the last decade, we said, okay, a lot of the bad things came true, but there was one thing that, that we were really wrong about. Uh, in, in 2010, we said that, you know, no private company could hope to go toe to toe with the Russians or the Chinese. That offense had such an advantage that it would be impossible for even the largest corporations to defend themselves. Well, that turned out not to be true. What we've seen uh, over the last decade is that many companies have realized it's in their business interests or they've been incentivized uh, by markets and by regulators to invest in cybersecurity to a level where they're really able to manage this threat day in and day out. Um, When we talked 10 years ago, the overwhelming uh, opinion we heard from corporate leaders was essentially, you know, we'll take care of crime, we'll take care of uh, the -the run-of-the-mill attacks, trying to defraud our customers, take money out of their accounts. But if it's the Russians or the Chinese, if it's government nations coming after us as symbols of American power, that's what I pay taxes for. That's what government does. And what we've seen since then is, at least at the top of the market, a recognition that, A, they have the capability to do this, and B, they need to take on this responsibility because there's no way that government can intercede. There's no way the government can stop uh, these attacks uh, at all, and certainly not in a way uh, that's not disruptive to how businesses want to operate. Uh, so so uh, these attacks can be stopped. Uh, companies are finding ways. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the more interesting things that we focused on uh, in the book was this idea of the offensive-defensive balance uh, in cyberspace, right? In any conflict, in any time period, um, there's a balance between offense and defense. Sometimes the offense has the advantage. Sometimes the defense has the advantage. So if you look, the classic example of this is World War I, uh, in which many of the militaries thought that new technologies uh, like train systems gave the offense the advantage, and therefore you had a first-mover advantage uh, in warfare, when in reality there was a huge defensive advantage with trench warfare and machine guns and artillery. That was World War One. That shifted to World War Two, where growth in aviation, uh, armored warfare, cavalry units, tank cavalry units, shifted uh, the balance to offense. So we've seen these kind of shifts happening. Well, in the cyber domain, we started out in a place where the offense had just an overwhelming advantage because systems weren't really defended at all. But we've slowly seen that erode over the last two decades 
and really erode over the last decade. So that now, many of the people we talk to on the offensive side, people who are U.S. government hackers or former U.S. government hackers, uh, said they didn't really think that there was an offensive advantage anymore because the defensive technology has gotten so good. Um, there is, I believe, a catch. My understanding is these uh, defenses are very expensive. Well, I'd say there, there's multiple catches, right? Okay. So, yeah. These defenses are are very expensive. So a company like J.P. Morgan, uh, which which had a fairly major cybersecurity incident in 2013-2014, that time frame, um, has since then been investing uh, on the tune of 500 to $600 to $700 million uh, per year in cybersecurity. Their CEO has pledged ramp-up spending to a billion dollars. Now, that's an awful lot of money. Uh, but you have to put it in context. A, a bank like J.P. Morgan will spend $14, $15 billion a year on information technology. They've got 40,000-plus people working in their information technology department. Uh, if you take that alone, they're as big as many of the Internet giants out there. I mean, a modern bank is essentially an IT company that lends money, that makes investments. And so from that perspective, even if J.P. Morgan is spending a billion dollars a year uh, on cybersecurity, they're getting an incredible rate on return in terms of efficiency, in terms of market share, in terms of access uh, to the global financial system from the investment they're making in information technology. And so even that billion-dollar investment that they're making is well worth it to protect their assets, trillions of dollars of assets that these large banks hold versus maybe a billion-dollar investment by one of them uh, in cybersecurity. So we think from that, that perspective, the money is well spent. There are certain markets, however, where there just aren't that kind of funds available where competition really doesn't allow companies to make the investments that they need to make. And that's where government's got to come in one way or another to, uh, to incentivize uh, this level of security. Uh, I want to follow up. Um, you said earlier that uh, in the book you emphasize that uh, you believe that it's uh, companies have to take the lead. Uh, normally, you know, defense, national defense, um, you would think would be government's responsibility. Why, why do you think uh, companies need to take the the lead and not government here? Well, so you know, I think the best illustration of this is is a story that I, that I can tell from uh, from my time in government uh, during uh, the many years that the uh, administration uh, was negotiating with Iran uh, over their nuclear program. Uh, the Iranians engaged in what's known as a distributed denial of service attack on many of the large U.S. banks. And, and what that means is they essentially commandeered computers all over the world to form what's called a botnet, uh, essentially enslaving these computers uh, so they would do their bidding. And then they used these computers to flood Internet traffic at the websites of large banks to take them down, to deny service, essentially, to the legitimate users. So during this period when the Iranians would do this, uh, if you were trying to get to, say, Goldman Sachs website, 
uh, it may have gone down because there would have been so many fake attempts to get onto the website. Their servers just would have been overwhelmed. And so this happened on and off for a period of, of several years. And, and during that time, I think everybody at every level of government, certainly every level in the White House, was, was getting pressed uh, by the banks to do something about this, right? Uh, and their essential answer was, as I said you know, earlier, right, that uh, this isn't our problem, right? The Iranians are, are targeting us because they believe the U.S. government has targeted them in cyberspace. Uh, they're targeting us uh, because of the geopolitical situation the U.S. government has put the United States into. They don't have anything against us as the banks. This shouldn't be our problem. Um, when we looked at that, you know, I think there was a lot of sympathy to that argument, but there was really very little that the U.S. government could do. Um, and this is all you know, very well documented, because when they didn't get the answer that they liked, they, they went to the Wall Street Journal, and the Wall Street Journal wrote a, a really sympathetic article that essentially said, hey, you know, government needs to be responsible for this, and government should do one of two things. It should either block the attacks, or it should hit back in cyberspace. And those are very compelling ideas, right? That's exactly what you would want to have happen, right? If you think of a cyber attack like a missile, that was what you would say, either shoot down the missile or fire missiles back. Well, that's not how cyberspace works. And so the idea of the U.S. government blocking the attack should, should give anybody who's concerned about domestic surveillance or government overreach a moment of pause, right? In the United States, we don't have a great firewall like the Chinese do. The Chinese operate a national network of Internet firewalls and sensors so they can watch everything happening domestically. It really doesn't, in fact, have much value from a cybersecurity perspective, but it's an incredible tool for online censorship and surveillance. It gives government access to all the data flowing over the Chinese Internet. And so we should not want the U.S. government to have that kind of capability, right? Our Internet has grown because government, which created the Internet initially for the Department of Defense, has been getting out of the business of running and operating the Internet that whole time and really severed the last government control of the Internet uh, in 2015. So we shouldn't want the government to come back in for security. Now, on the idea of using offensive operations, um, the Iranians, like cyber criminals, uh, and like all our adversaries, are pretty clever. And so they didn't attack us by setting up a server farm in Tehran uh, and using that to blitz U.S. websites. No, they took over computers around the world. They took over computers in our adversaries like China and Russia, they took over computers and our allies like France and Germany and the United Kingdom and Canada. Uh, but most of the computers that they took over for these attacks were located in the United States. And so if you'd wanted to use offensive cyber capability or, God forbid, a kinetic capability, drop a bomb on a server farm to take it out, uh, you wouldn't have been attacking Iran. You would have been attacking U.S. companies. Uh, in the United States, companies like GoDaddy and HostGator uh, that are uh, big web hosting companies 
Uh, most of them, I think, were in Texas at the time, uh, the servers that were used in this attack. And so it, it creates a very complicated picture for saying, how could government solve this problem for the banks? Uh, it turned out that the banks were pretty capable of solving this problem for themselves once they had gotten the message that nobody was going to ride in on a white horse and solve the problem for them. Uh, and they made some reasonable investments in their IT security to deal with the problem. I'll say the last point on this that that really always troubled me is we had uh, these corporations coming to government and saying, we need you to solve this problem for us. We we consider this a hostile act against the United States. We consider this an act of war. And we, in fact, want you to either reimagine how the Internet works in the United States to defend us, or we want you uh, to go offensive uh, in response to these attacks. Every quarter that these attacks went on and for the years after, none of the banks reported that these attacks had had any material effect on their business. None of them rose to having any kind of effect on their bottom line uh, as they reported in their quarterly and annual SEC filings. And so from that perspective, I think we really made the right call. If you step back and you say, hey, if this didn't even amount to a material impact on your bottom line, would it have been something that the U.S. government should really have stepped in and tried to solve for you? Yeah, I was going to ask that, the the overall effect on the the bottom line of these companies. It, it sounds like it, it, they, they price it in. It's, it's okay. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that that's the answer. We want, we want to treat this as the cost of doing business and make sure companies are baking that in to their financials. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll have more with Robert Kanaki. He, along with Richard Clark, are, uh, is the author of a new book. Very interesting book. It's out now, The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, look to the future you do in the book. Um, it's it's an arms race, right? The, the uh, offense and defense in cyberspace. And uh, in the future, we'll, we'll, it's, a, it's a brave new world with artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, 5G, Internet of Things. Um, and how does that affect uh, cyber uh, security? Uh, I want to talk about that when we come back following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting living history at the American West Heritage Center, featuring a herd of bison, mountain men, pioneers, and turn-of-the-century farmers. Activities include pony rides and tomahawk throwing. Information available at explorelogan.com. How do we define and live with risk in unexpected places? You see a lot more populism when we live in uncertain times, and we are living in uncertain times now. I'm John Donvan. That's my guest, Alison Schrager, author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Usually, if you visit a sex worker, there's a lot of risk involved. Disrupting the way we talk about risk on the next Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. (music) 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our final segment with Robert Kanaki, along with Richard Clark. He's author of the new book, The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Robert Kanaki, before we go to the future, uh, I want to talk uh, one more thing about the present. That was uh, chilling to me as I was reading the book. Um, you say that you know there's essentially warfare going on in cyberspace, and these are militaries who are you know doing the hacking and such, um, and that there is a danger that this could spill into conventional warfare. Well, we've already seen uh, a few examples of that. Uh, in one case, uh, the Israeli military had identified. Uh, a group of Hamas hackers uh, that were targeting Israel in a series of ways. And while the Israelis are very good at offensive uh, cyber, some of the best in the world, um, they responded in old-fashioned kinetic way. They, they dropped a bomb on the location where the hackers were working out of. Uh, and so that's at least one example that we've seen of something uh, that began in the cyber world moving to kinetic. Now, the, the other side of it, which is in some ways, uh, I think, good news, um, recently there was a, a U.S. Dra- uh, drone in uh, the Straits of Hormuz uh, off of Iran uh, that was downed by the Iranians. Uh, so they shot down our drone. Uh, President Trump asked for uh, military options to respond to that act, uh, which is understood to have taken place uh, over international waters, uh, international airspace. Um, and the response he got back uh, from the military for a kinetic response would have, uh, the, uh, what they called the, uh, the damage assessment from that, uh, was about 150 casualties. And President Trump said, that seems like too much of an escalation. Give me an option for a cyber attack. Uh, and they did, and uh, he ended up choosing that option. Uh, we don't know what, in fact, the effects of that option were. That's the nature of cyber uh, attacks in, in many cases or in most cases. Uh, but that was an example where uh, we saw how uh, kinetic warfare and cyber warfare, there aren't necessarily going to be clean lines uh, between them. Oh, we just have about five minutes left in the conversation. I do want to look to the future, and you, you treat this in the book. So uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, 5G, Internet of Things, uh, new technologies. There'd be great positives in these, but new vulnerabilities, I would assume, uh, to, to cyber attack. Yeah, I, I think the, the good news and the bad news, I, I said when we were talking about the offense-defense balance that there were a couple of things that could change them. And, and certainly one of them is that uh, the landscape of technology keep shifting. And when these shifts happen, sometimes they favor the offense and sometimes they favor the defense. Uh, And we don't really know at this point uh, how these technologies are going to affect this balance. Are they going to make it easier to defend or are they on balance going to make it easier to attack? Um, In an area like artificial intelligence, we've seen a lot of great capabilities uh, from machine learning uh, applied to the defensive side. So there's a whole new generation of uh, artificial intelligence-based endpoint systems that can detect threats on individual computers, on individual endpoints, uh, and figure out if they're malicious, even if nobody's ever seen them before, even if they've been 
never been discovered if they're brand new, uh, which was a challenge for old AV. So that's, that's really positive on the artificial intelligence side. On the negative side, we're seeing things like deep, deep fakes, right? The ability to take uh, photos and imagery and the voice of an individual that's been recorded over time and use artificial intelligence to piece that person's words and that person's face back together uh, to create a fake version of them saying things that they never said. Uh, we've seen that now multiple times used in the political arena uh, to try and influence elections and influence politics. And we're going to see more of it um, on that level. Right now, the artificial intelligence can't keep up. It's easier to create these than it is to detect them with artificial intelligence. Things like quantum computing, uh, we really have no idea how that's going to play out. The best understanding of this technology as it develops is that it will create both impossible to break encryption, but also quantum computing could be used to break every known form uh, of encryption. And so from that perspective, it's going to be a very open question about whether quantum favors the offense or the defense. I think ultimately, when we looked at the Internet of Things and 5G, the next generation of cellular technology, that really looks like, on balance, it's going to favor uh, the attacker, not the defender, because it's going to just put billions of devices online, and there's very little chance that these devices that are going to be in everything uh, are going to be built securely and maintained securely. Uh, it's, it'll be an exciting future. We just have two minutes left. I want to uh, end on uh, kind of where you uh, end the book uh, in terms of bringing it down to personal. What uh, what are the top couple things that I can do uh, to protect myself? So, you know, the basics are if, if your password is 1234 and you use it across every Internet website, <laughs> stop doing that. Uh, we highly recommend using a password manager. Uh, something like Dashlane, something like uh, LastPass. Uh, these kinds of tools uh, on your phone and on your computer will generate and memorize strong passwords for you, and then you only need to use one password. The second thing for your important accounts, your important communications, certainly your email, use multi-factor authentication. That's something like an application or getting a text message or a phone call with a digital code that you enter so that you're not just relying on a single password to protect your important things. And the last piece I would say is email. If you're still using an old Roadrunner account or something you got from a cable provider that's gone out of business 10 or 15 years ago or AOL, uh, it's time to upgrade to a modern email service provider that's going to be protecting you from the threats out there. Gmail's good. Uh, Apple's good. Outlook is good. There are good options out there, but it's time to uh, migrate away from those. That's a good place to end the conversation. We're just about out of time in any case. Uh, very interesting new book. It's uh, just out, uh, and it's called The Fifth Domain. Um, and uh, Richard Clark and Robert Kanaki are the authors. Robert Kanaki is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior research scientist at Northeastern University and author, uh, co-author with Richard Clark of the New York Times bestseller, previously Cyber War. Robert Kanaki, thank you so much. An enjoyable conversation. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hey, Lael. 
people with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. qualities do you think make a really good leader? If they keep the peace and, and keep everybody happy and, and bring harmony to the group, that's, that's the ones that they really like in chimpanzee society. What we can learn from animals, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us, join us Sunday afternoon at 2 here on Utah Public Radio.